Hi listeners, it's Kat here from Castagast. I just wanted to take a minute outside of the show to let you know about Alter Ego Empowerment Coaching. It's time to invest in your relationship with yourself. We all have a tendency to put other people or tasks first, but in doing so, we can sometimes neglect our relationship with ourselves. Let me be your advocate and show you a kinder, gentler way to treat the most important person in your life, yourself. Alter Ego Wellness offers life coaching to help you achieve the life you desire through interactive online coaching sessions. We also offer online yoga and meditation classes. If you think Alter Ego Wellness may help you, please feel free to contact me, Catherine, at alteregowellness at outlook.com or at alteregowell on Instagram. Okay, now back to our show. Hey there, gentle folk. My goodness. Welcome to another beautiful and emotional episode of Castagast. We got some fun stuff for you today, and I would like to just show you just a little bit of a tidbit. Today's pornography genres are electrical cord and medical tape, hitchhiking with a friend, staying up and watching Love Boat, and one of my favorite porn genres, claw hammer pond diving. Mmm. Yep, you guessed it. If you know your fucking murders and your fucking shit, you know we're talking about the Ketty murders. This one is annoying because it doesn't have closure, but it's pretty fucking obvious who did it by the end. We hope you enjoy it. Best of luck. I'm John. And I am Kat. Who's currently on the treadmill and watching an episode of Love Island. And this is Castagast. Oh, we snuck up on you. Shit. <laughs> didn't see us there, did you? <laughs> <laughs> Bet you didn't think we'd be back. <laughs> but fuck yes, we are. <laughs> and we got shit to say. We don't care how hard something is failing. We <laughs> stick to it. Yeah. We go away for a long while. And then we put out a best of video. And then we're like, okay, maybe we'll try again. New year, new me. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of blood, gore, and guts, and fucking rape, and murder to talk to you about. Yeah. You uh, you hear me, Ric Flair? <laughs> you hear me? It's hard times we're going to talk about today. Some monkey funky motherfucking shit, Ric Flair. I don't have to say a lot more about the way I feel about Ric Flair. Mm-hmm. Hard times. No respect. That's funky. <laughs> 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 don't know what hard times are, daddy. All right, Mr. John. Are you ready to get back into the swing of things? Is this a good one? Well, I that's a loaded question because it's it's about people getting murdered. So okay. I don't necessarily want to say it's good. It's detailed. It's detailed. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're up for disclaimer. All right, disclaimer time. Cue the fucking music. Now's your chance to go to the washroom and get your favorite drink, and because you have about forty-five minutes before this disclaimer <laughs> go make a is sandwich. over. Eat go to the, the sandwich. Go to the grocery store. Hit up your local casino. Cue the fucking music. Hey, folks. Mm. We here at Castagast have the lightest touch to true crime. 
the lightest touch you could possibly imagine. We are like the nail clipper, slowly approaching that one frustrating skin tag on the side of your boob. Oh my god. <laughs> and it seems to be discolored and you're concerned about cancer. And you've been picking at it for about three months and it's just about gone and you're like, fuck it, you know, I'm gonna go for it. And slowly, ever so gently, you place the teeth of the nail clipper around the skin tag and with one snip, off goes the skin tag of podcasts. <laughs> That's Wait, no. us just fluttering <laughs> to the floor. Or are we the nail clipper? Yeah. We are the nail clipper of true crime on the snipping off the skin tag of podcasts. <laughs> That's hard time. That's hard time. And the reason we have to have this air of levity is because true crime sucks. It always has and always will. Don't fool yourself. Just because you get a hard on listening to us doesn't mean what we're talking about isn't terrible. And we need to go to work because we can't afford not to. <laughs> and we can't be riddled with depression and sadness all goddamn day because of this fucking podcast. So, if you are not in favor of insulting and belittling and shitting verbally upon murderers and rapists and their family who created them and all the other fucking bastards who made it easier for them to do what they did, if you don't like that, you're a dumbass. You're a shithead. And you probably tuned in to watch Disney's Echo and thought, my God, what a profound fucking experience that was. You're a fucking fool and a clown. For the rest of you, you're cultured and intellectual and you have independent minds. And you think rationally. And we welcome you. And we hope that you enjoy this goddamn fucking episode. So sit back, relax, and other euphemisms. And uh, bless your hearts. Enjoy. So we were gone for a while, and you didn't even skip a beat with yeah, your intros. Yeah, it still took forever. It's like forever. riding a bike. Okay, let's get on with the goddamn show. All right. So today, we're exploring a chilling and unsolved case that continues to haunt the small town of Keddie, California, to this very day. Keddie, California. This is the story of the Keddie Cabin Murders. As not to be confused with the Keddie Ranch-style home murders. Exactly. The yeah, Keddie townhouse murders. <laughs> the the Keddie condominium <laughs> slangs. <laughs> Anyways, we could go on for days. We could, we could. The Keddie ultra-modern studio apartment murders. <laughs> the Keddie... There's people in Keddie right now who are like, shut up! We don't even have ultra-modern condominiums and, and studio apartments, you son of a bitch. <laughs> In July of 1979, Glenna Susan Sharp and her five children left their Connecticut home after Glenna has separated from her husband, James Sharp. Is Glenna the bad guy? No. Okay. Um, I won't say anything about her name. Unsolved case. Oh. <laughs> so we don't know. We won't know. I won't have anyone to make fun of. Oh, you you will. Oh, tits. Glenna went by Sue, so moving forward, I'll be just calling her that name. They moved. That makes it easy, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, just, that's what she went by, so in respect for her. Hi, my name is Glenna, but you can call me Stacy. Susan Sharp. <laughs> Glenna Susan Sharp. My name is Francis, but you can call me Wilbur. My name is John Johnson, but everyone here calls me Vicky. Why Vicky? <laughs> Anyways. Okay, by God. <laughs> so they moved to Quincy, located in Northern California, where Sue had a brother. Yeah. Sue rented a trailer that her brother had previously lived in. 
However, for Sue and her five children, this trailer proved to be a little too small for her and her big family. So the following autumn, she moved her family to Ketty, a small railroad town located in the same county of Quincy. This new area was almost like a long-term living campground. It was a series of larger cabins that were rented out. She rented House 28. Oh, nice. Number 28. That yeah. was a good one. This... <laughs> and also, why do they call it a railroad town? Like, when does a, well, when does a town with a railroad... This is 1979, so... Well, when does a town with a railroad stop being a railroad town? You never hear, like, oh, it's a railroad city. This cabin was much larger. I live in a highway hamlet. Don't you want to get to Baldur's Gate 3? Yes, sorry, All right. keep going. Don't let me stop you. Don't let me slow you down. This cabin was much larger than the trailer, granting Sue and her family a lot more room. Her five children were five-year-old Greg, 10-year-old Rick, 12-year-old Tina, 14-year-old Sheila, and 15-year-old John. With three teenagers and two younger boys, this family really needed their space. <laughs> when you have a family that size, there's no way that all those names are at the top of the list with the first one. Yeah. So it's like, the names are like, we like this one fifth best. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why we gave it to you. That's why you're Greg and your older brother is John. On April 11th, 1981, at about 11.30 in the morning, Sheila, Greg, and Sue went to pick up 10-year-old Rick from his friend's place. While driving, they saw 15-year-old John hitchhiking with his friend Dana Hall Wingate. Sue picked them up and took them to where they were going, which is about six miles away from Ketty. At about 3.30, John and Dana hitchhiked to Quincy to visit friends. They were seen in the downtown area that afternoon. And that was very common back then to get around. The method was like hitchhiking. It wasn't like as taboo as it is now. Not taboo. It wasn't as like safety wasn't that big of a concern back then with hitchhiking as it is today. Okay. Wouldn't you agree? I guess. You, you, okay. wa- you watch movies like Stand By Me and uh, in The Hitcher, and you think, wow, what a safe time it was. You want to know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? On the same evening, I'll... when do they hitchhike in Stand By Me? The entire fucking movie is them hitchhiking. No, the entire movie is them walking through field and forest. What's the definition of hitchhiking? I think hitchhiking is when you put your thumb out at the side of the road asking other drivers to pick you up. They don't do that once in Stand By Me. I was just thinking hiking. Okay. You're hitching a ride. Oh, fuck everything. Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are. On the same, yes. Yeah, so she took them to where they wanted to go. Then they later hitchhiked to Quincy to visit friends where they were seen in the downtown area. Fair. On the same evening, April 11th, Sheila and Tina were over at the neighbors, the Seabolts. Sue remained at home with Rick, Greg, and one of Rick's friends, 12-year-old Justin Smart, who would be spending the night. These people all have kick-ass last names. Have you noticed that? Sharp. Seabolt. Smart. This is a very long one, just letting you know. Okay, shut up. Like I pre-warned you before we started recording. (laughs) Tina returned home from the Seabolts at about 9.30 p.m., while Sheila would stay out sleeping over at the neighbor's. Sue, Rick, and Justin would stay up until about 10 p.m. to watch Love Boat with Sue. Oh, man. Love Boat. Fuck yes. It floats back to you. That's a sign of the times. Classic. John and Dana came home later on that evening. There probably is no reason to do this, but I should make it clear that Dana is a boy. It's John's friends, not John and Dana's and Dana's a girl. Is that worth mentioning? I don't know. Okay. 
But Dana is a boy. How dare you assume his gender? (laughs) 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 What? (laughs) (laughs) Between 7 and 8 a.m. on Sunday, April 12th, Sheila headed over to cabin 28. When she entered the home, she walked into a house of horrors. 15-year-old John was lying face up in a pool of his own blood. His friend Dana was lying next to him, face down. Her mother Sue was wrapped up in a yellow blanket. All three victims were tied with medical tape and electrical cords. Oh, God, fuck. Sheila, obviously, fled the scene screaming in horror and ran back to the Seabolt's cabin. Mrs. Siebel took Sheila, and the two of them would run to the nearest phone, which was at cabin number 25, where the landlord resided. They called the Plumas County Sheriff's Office. While waiting for the dispatched officer, Sheila, Mrs. Siebel, and her son Jamie made their way back to cabin 28 to search for the rest of Sheila's family. They peered through the windows, and they discovered 5-year-old Greg, 10-year-old Rick, and 12-year-old Justin sleeping in the same bedroom. They tapped the windows to wake them up and advised them to exit through the window they were at so they wouldn't have to see the gruesome scene in the living room. Jamie Siebold entered through the back door that was left open by the killers to check if anyone else was alive and then left, potentially contaminating the crime scene while doing this. He left and the Siebolds and the survivors waited for the officers to arrive. Deputy Hank Clement was the first to arrive at the crime scene. Deputy Hank. Clement. Clement. He confirmed that the victims were deceased and that the house was clear from any intruders. At 8.28 a.m., Sergeant Jerry Shaver arrived at the scene and he was informed by Deputy Hank that it was a triple homicide. Deputy Clement and Sergeant Shaver re-entered cabin 28 to review the crime scene together. At 9.30 a.m., Sheriff Sylvester Thomas and Assistant Sheriff Ken Shanks arrived, Following shortly behind was Officer Don Stoy. They all entered the house. This would make seven people total entering the house since the crime. Sheila, Jamie, and five police officers. This would spark concern as this likely contaminated any evidence left behind by the killers. After five officers entered and walked about the cabin, they then began the duties of processing the scene of the crime by taking photos and collecting any evidence they could find. Based on the details of the crime scene, it looked like this. Closest to the door was 15-year-old John. He was lying face up with his arms bound, resting on his torso. His arms were tied tightly with medical tape, and his ankles were bound with an electrical cord. The electrical cable stretched across the floor over to Dana, where the other end of the cord was tied around Dana's ankles. He had a different style of medical tape binding his wrists, and also binding his ankles. Sue's wrists and legs were bound with a smaller medical tape, along with three different electrical cords tightly knotted around the medical tape. She was naked from the waist down. for fuck's sakes. And in her mouth was her own underwear used as a gag. She also had tape over her mouth. Oh, fuck this. The yellow blanket that she was wrapped in had come from Tina's bed. A bent steak knife was located on the floor. A butcher knife and a claw hammer, also bloodied, were side by side on a small table near the entry in the kitchen. There was another terrifying realization while processing the scene. There was no Tina. Twelve-year-old Tina was missing. Upon the discovery, the FBI was called to the scene. Wow, the FBI showed up. 
As the house was more thoroughly searched, Tina's jacket, shoes, and a toolbox were missing from the house. They also found blood on Tina's bed, knife marks, and indentations on multiple walls around the home. A bloody fingerprint was found on a railing in a door frame, and a shoe print was found behind the cabin. All drapes were closed, phones were off the hook, and phone lines had been cut. There was no sign of forced entry, but we know that a door was left open because Jamie Seabolt had entered through it searching the house earlier that day. Sue, John, and Dana's autopsies were performed on April 13th. Dana had multiple head injuries and a laceration on the back of his head on the right side. He also suffered from blunt force trauma, which is likely where the laceration came from. This was caused by a hammer that was not located at the scene. Oh, fuck. God damn it. Dana's cause of death was manual strangulation. Oh, fuck. That's like such a slow, fucked mm-hmm. up death. 15-year-old John had a slash on the right side of his throat. He also suffered from blunt force trauma to the right side of his head caused by a hammer. He also had deep bruises on his left eye. John's cause of death was blunt force trauma and knife wounds. God damn it. Like, just beating on these fucking kids. Holy shit. Sue suffered from stab wounds to the chest. Her throat was stabbed horizontally. The knife had gone through her neck into her larynx, nicking her spine. Oh, Jesus. She had a bruise on the left side of her head that matched the butt of a Daisy 880 Power Line BB pellet rifle. She died from her knife wounds and blunt force trauma. Imagine being able, like, she was hit that hard. That they could match. That you could actually make a match that it was the butt of an, an 880. Yeah, like someone looked at it like, nope, that's not a 620. That's an 880. I bet my bottom dollar on that. As the investigation was underway, police were suspecting at least two killers. They believed it to be tough for one killer to control the family the way the crime scene indicated, and that it was clear that there was no rush. So at least two killers was the most likely theory. Yeah, it makes sense. Based on the blood throughout the house, it was also clear that the victims were moved around during the crime. Sue's bare foot and Dana's shoe sole had blood on them, indicating that they had stepped in blood prior to their deaths. Neighbors were questioned. Sheila and the Seabolts had not heard a thing coming from the house at any point. A couple in cabin 16 were woken up at 1.15 a.m. by what they described as muffled screaming. Another neighbor claimed they had heard a dog barking near the cabin as well and that the porch light was turned on at around 4 a.m. Other neighbors noted that there was an unfamiliar green van parked outside of cabin 28 at around 9 p.m. Martin Smart, Justin's father, told police that a claw hammer had gone missing from his home. He had stated this before it was made public that a claw hammer was used at the crime scene. Police then received word from Marilyn Smart, Justin's mother, that Justin did potentially witness the crime. So earlier that day, he was sleeping soundly and had to be woken up. Now, he allegedly saw something. Originally, it was understood that Justin, Greg, and Rick were left untouched, had slept through the night, not hearing a thing. That is what they first said to the cops. Justin Smart then came forward to his mother, saying that he had heard something. This conflicted with his previous statements, but he was later put under hypnosis and gave a very detailed description of what happened that night. They used hypnosis. The 70s, right? 1979 or 81, I think. Yeah, 1981. So not unheard of. Okay. According to Justin and his time under hypnosis, he was woken up sometime in the night to loud noises in the living room. 
When he went out to the living room, he saw Sue speaking with two men. One had a mustache and long hair, while the other was clean-shaven with short hair. Both men had glasses and were described as being in their late 20s or early 30s, and that one of the men had a hammer. Justin Smart stated that John and Dana then entered the home, and a violent fight ensued. Tina had awoken from the commotion, and he witnessed one of the men take Tina out of the cabin's back door. Oh, God. That was all Justin could recall of the night. From the descriptions Justin provided, police were able to develop two composite sketches. Oh, God. And we'll post these on our on our Castagast Instagram page. But These are ugly fucking people. <laughs> the one guy, though, looks like he belongs on a university campus in California today. <laughs> what I'm saying is he seems like he might be confused about who he is. <laughs> Due to Justin's new testimony and Martin's comment regarding the hammer, Martin Smart became suspect number one in this case. But sadly, they didn't have much to go on. Unfortunately, as we said earlier, no one has ever been charged or convicted of this crime. The police believe Martin Smart and a man by the name of John Bo Bubetti was involved. Bubetti. We just call him Bo. <laughs> So the police believe Bo and Martin Smart were involved. While Martin was interviewed, he had claimed that himself, Bo, and his wife went over to cabin number 28 that night to invite Sue to the bar, which she declined. They didn't stay at the bar long as Martin disliked the music that they were playing. Marilyn, Martin's wife, went to bed around 11 p.m. According to Martin, he and Bo went back to the bar after Marilyn went to bed. Even though he didn't like the music, they went back. Yeah. They came home about an hour later, around midnight. Marilyn woke up around 2 a.m. to the men burning items in the wood stove. Marilyn also stated that Martin hated Johnny Sharp, and Bo called him a punk. Oh, man, he really hated him. Marilyn also stated that Martin was aggressive and physically abusive towards her. She had told this to Sue once, and Martin apparently went ballistic. Someone in the sheriff's office tipped off Martin and Bo that they were being considered as suspects, and the two left California. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I got nothing to hide. I'm just going to jump. Flee, leave my family and yeah, fuck off. Just going to flee the state. Marilyn participated in a documentary about the case in 2008, and she stated that she strongly believes that Bo and her husband Martin were responsible. It was also stated in the documentary that Martin has allegedly passed a lie detector's test. In an article published in the Sacramento Bee, a Californian newspaper, in 2016, Martin had apparently sent Marilyn a letter from Reno, Nevada. He concluded the letter with, quote, I've paid the price of your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through? Great. What else do you want? End quote. What the fuck? The police disregarded this letter. What? Yeah. How could you just disregard the letter? We'll discuss this after. No, oh, fuck off. A counselor that Martin had seen regularly also claimed that he admitted to the murders of Tina and Sue, but didn't have anything to do with the boys. He claimed he killed Tina so she couldn't be a witness. So there's like a lot of confessions happening. <laughs> and but like, no one's been caught. Yeah. On April 22nd, 1984... Three years after the vicious murders, a person who was out collecting bottles stumbled across bones. Oh, God. When he inspected closer, he saw what appeared to be a human skull and part of a mandible, which is the largest bone of the human skull. This was located outside of Camp 18 in Feather Falls, 
a neighboring area of Ketty, 167 kilometers away from cabin number 28. When this discovery hit the presses and media, police received an anonymous call that they had just discovered Tina Sharp. Oh, really? The remains were tested, and it was confirmed to be the body of Tina Sharp. Yeah, of course it was. Canvassing the area where her remains were found, they had located her blue nylon jacket, a blanket, Levi jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty medical tape dispenser. Tina's discovery would bring the case back into the light again, but sadly, the discovery of Tina did not bring anything new forward. On March 24, 2016, a hammer was found at the bottom of a pond in Ketty. It was identical to the hammer Martin claimed to have lost 35 years earlier. Really? Okay. It was identical. Yeah. Like, not like, oh, it's Mastercraft, but he <laughs> thinks he lost... A DeWalt a or DeWalt, something. A DeWalt, a DeWalt, a DeWalt make hammers? <laughs> it is believed to have been put there intentionally. Martin Smart died from cancer in Portland, Oregon in June 2000. John Bo Bubetti died in Chicago in 1988. Cabin number 28 was demolished in 2004. Jeez, it took that long for Mm -hmm. cabin 28 to be demolished. So we just have, and we'll post these on our cast underscore aghast Instagram page. The crime scene photos and the victims. So there's... Sue, John, Tina, and Dana. Oh, my God. And then the... uh, Holy shit. Crime scene. Fuck. There they are as an entire family. There's the cabin. Jeez, they call it a cabin. Like, that's a straight-up house. (laughs) Like, when I think cabin, I think, like... Like one big room with maybe a bathroom separated. Yeah, or, or, you know, basically what what we live in. (laughs) We do not live in a cabin. Oh, but that's... You can cut that out. (laughs) <laughs> we live in a beautiful home. So that's the story of the Ketty Cabin murders. All right. Hands up if you think Martin and, and Bo Bridges did it. I did. You couldn't keep your cock in your pocket. Don't sue us, Bo Bridges, for slander. Um, I definitely think Martin and Bo did it, uh, considering that obviously Justin's 12 years old. He's going to be scared. Yeah. I bet you he saw his dad. And that's how he got he in got, the 4th century. He got scared. Or or not even. A lot of people didn't lock their doors back then either. You mean idiots didn't lock their doors so back then. So they could have very well just walked in. Who knows? Or if Sue was still up, she knows Martin. So she probably opened the door to him. Just because there's no 4th century doesn't mean, you know, anything. She could have just opened the door to him, recognizing him, knowing him. They, that's why I neighbors. said that. I said that. And you said Justin let him in. What? I just said they let him in because they knew it was his dad for fuck's sake. Okay, yes. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So he, they were let in the house that way, I believe. And I believe Justin woke up in the middle of the night and saw his dad and what they were doing. He was either told to go back to bed or, or went, got scared and went back to bed. And trying to protect his dad out of fear, maybe, as well. He didn't say anything at first, but he knew, obviously, right from wrong. Tells his mom, Mom, I did see something. Yeah. And the mom's like, your dad is a nut. We're going to the cops. Because she was very vocal yeah. about her beliefs on it. She left, you know, he he left her. She obviously, whenever he got that letter, she obviously broke it off with him. Yeah. Um. 
So I, I definitely think it was, why come forward about the claw hammer when nothing was said about a claw hammer? Yeah. Like, usually these stupid criminals, it's when it hits the news, like, we're on the lookout for this, and then someone would be like, oh, fuck. Well, I actually had one go missing. Yeah. So if it's mine that's found, it, someone it was stolen. It. Yeah, exactly. Someone broke into my home and took my hammer. This guy uh, offered Fucking that it. information on a silver platter, but obviously someone in the... In the um, sheriff's office was protecting them too because why was that letter disregarded? They botched the crime scene from the very beginning. Oh, no kidding. 1981, you know how to process a crime scene. You know how to process a crime scene in the fucking 40s and 50s. Like you don't just trample through everyone in and out. Oh yeah, it's a triple homicide. Oh, let me go in and see. Oh yeah, it is. Hey, oh, you just showed up. Look, come on in. Have a look at this. And then after five or seven people, I had said seven people total had trampled that scene. They then start processing it what a bunch of fucking asses um so but for whoever was in the sheriff's office that tipped off martin and boa you know they're looking at you guys pretty hard like i feel there was some police protection there on martin's behalf yeah you know small towns too that's not unusual yeah exactly I fucking hate it when shit like that happens. Yeah. Useless fucking bastards. Like in the 70s, I wonder what the criteria was to become a police officer, you know? Like, was it just college? And no, like, I know no way there was college. Yeah, was it just like graduate and, ma- and enter the police academy? Graduate high school and then you enter police academy? If there is even a fucking academy. Yeah, interesting. But... Yeah, that's the story. And, you know, even with today's technology, even if they are able to nail it on Martin, Bo, or even some other complete stranger, you know, everyone's gone. For the survivors, would it bring closure? I don't know. That's a hell of a fucking story. Yeah. I hope uh, if it was Martin and Bo that they died painfully gasping for fucking air, pieces of shit. Do we have a picture of Martin and Bo? Martin and Bo, yeah, Martin died in 2000 of cancer. I don't know what boat died of. Yeah, this is him. So we don't know if he was the guy who did it, but I'm not going to make fun of him too hard other than to say that he had a ridiculous receding hairline. <laughs> well, he was still a piece of shit for beating his wife, right? So Okay, yeah, he's a, <laughs> Look at this fuck. This skinny goddamn shit and with those giant fucking plaid lines on his <laughs> Stupid blue shirt. And I guess that was Bo. Jesus Christ, he looks like a mortician. Yeah, he's weird looking. That is a, yeah, that is a weird fucking, like, what is he, friends with David Lynch? Like, (laughs) Jesus Christ. Fuck that ugly son of a bitch. He looks like someone, and I'm talking about Martin here. Martin looks like the kind of guy who jerks off into a sock. Ugh, God. And then doesn't do the laundry and... It comes down to having cold feet or wearing that sock at the end of the week. He looks like the kind of guy who has two different kinds of slippers. You know? That was funny. He looks like the kind of guy who gets hard nipples when it's like fucking 80 degrees out. Or like the kind of guy that has like a bathrobe, but the sash to the bathrobe is from another robe. Yeah. We don't know anything about Bo. We don't know. He, like, we know Martin's a piece of shit. We don't really know anything about Bo. He could be completely innocent. We'll leave Bo as an innocent party. Are you ready for some Joe Bob? Yep. All right, time for the wise musings of his brigness, Joseph Robert Briggs. 
That's it for me. Joe Bob Briggs reminding you that there are 24 hours in a day and 24 beers in a case. Coincidence? I think not. Here, here. Yeah, fair enough. Amen to that. Beer makes me a bit gassy, though. I have, <laughs> I have to admit, I've had to switch to whiskey and vodka. Oh, what a sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> what, a, what an intelligent fucking guy. Well. <laughs> oh, my God. This one's hilarious. Why don't you give us a, a bonus quote? All right, here's another one. That's it for me. Hey, maybe you heard this one. Who is the most popular man at the nudist colony? The guy who can carry two coffees and 12 donuts. <laughs> That's amazing. (laughs) And on that note, here's John and Kat signing off. (laughs) Shut the fuck up. See you, folks. Good night. Ciao. You can check us out on YouTube at Catam Concoction. That's C-A-T-A-M-C-O-N-C-O-C-T-I-O-N. And on Instagram at cast underscore aghast. Remember, there's a silent H. See, we were gone for a while and you didn't even... Oh, sk- get the cat. Watch it before she steps on fucking the keyboard. All right, cat. Everybody say hello to Ennis. Ennis, say hello. <laughs> <laughs> between seven eight, b- Between seven to... Blah, blah. Mrs. Seabolt took... Mrs. Seabolt took Sheila and the... Mrs. Seabolt... Oh, my goodness. God, I, I believe in you. Keep going. Along with three different electrical cords tied tightly. At the house was more. As the house was more thoroughly. I believe in you. Keep going. Be strong. (laughs) Strength. Why'd you look at me like that? Because you're beautiful. Oh, shut up. Tina had awoken from the commotion and witnessed one of the men. Tina had woken. Oh, my God. Someone in the sheriff's. Someone in the sheriff's office. Oh, God. Keep trying. When this discovery hit the presses and media, police received an anonymous. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. When this when this discovery hit the presses and media, police received an anonymous call. Autonomous. No, it's anonymous. <laughs> I just wrote it wrong and I finally said it and now I have to start again. Whoops. <laughs>